as soon as uh, the uh, establishment, um, whether it's uh, media, politicians, uh, whatever it might be, stacks up against somebody for something, that's when you should take a breath and really, really look at it and ask the why. And usually I ask myself, no matter what it is, how does this, this person, this corporation, this entity uh, want to manipulate me with whatever it is that they're putting out? Um, because it's uh, social media in particular is a tool and uh, a tool that can be used to manipulate. And uh, so that's, that's the question I ask. How is this, how's this person, what is, it, what is this person trying to do? What is this, this corporation trying to do? How are they trying to get me to think? How are they trying to influence my behavior? Now, back in the day, it would be uh, uh, consumer behavior. We want you to buy something um, and uh, buy your product rather than the competitors. No different. Now it is about uh, controlling, influencing, manipulating behaviors and thoughts. Uh, and even without the AI side of the house, it is a very popular, a very powerful tool when it comes to manipulation. So I always just take a breath and ask myself how am I trying being manipulated when I see something. And even if it's against somebody that I uh, uh, don't like, uh, for, sure. for lack of a better term, uh, and see something pile up against that person, I wonder, oh, why, what are they trying to do? What's, what's uh, how am I being manipulated here? What's going on, guys? Ian Scotto here, Battleline Podcast, tremendous episode coming up with Navy SEAL Jack Carr. We get into all different types of things. Um, I mean, Navy SEAL, best-selling author. He's got a book that's coming out, Only the Dead. I know you're a little jealous. I have the advanced copy right there. Um, but it's going to be out later this month, May 16th. So get the pre-order now. Very excited to have him on. Um, and actually, as a guy I've known since really when he first came out with the first Terminal Series novel and now i turn on ufc as i say to him and, and he's sitting there cage side and next to mel gibson he's he's become quite a superstar but he's still a very humble down-to-earth guy uh before we get into everything i gotta talk about actually uh our friend sean lake right he knows plenty of navy seals i don't know if he knows jack necessarily but how many navy seals use bubs natural uh, Bubs Naturals. I mean, I see Clint Emerson using Bubs Naturals and so many other guys just because of the connection with Sean. That's enough to get you to try the product. But once you're using it regularly and you're using the collagen and MCT oil powder and you see the effects on joints, on workout recovery, you will be sold like so many of our listeners are. So Bubs Naturals, for those of you who don't know about the benefits of collagen, collagen is the most abundant protein in the human body. It is literally the glue that holds our bodies together. Collagen is a blend of highly functional amino acids found in all the body's connective tissue. Now, what makes them great is they're all single source uh, grass-fed cows that they use and also uh, just that ground-up cowhide. It's great if you're working through any injuries and also, as I said, for workout recovery. If you're looking for a product for cleansing, their apple cider vinegar gummies cannot be beat. The MCT oil powder uh, from Coconuts, great source of energy. So check out all their products. They also have Bub's Brew now. They've got Hydrate or Dye. Everything that they put out there, they really work hard on and put out the best product possible. So check out bubsnaturals.com. Use the promo code BATTLELINE 
and you're going to get 20% off. I know you've seen them on the shelves at different places, but you'll get the best deal through us when you go to bubsnaturals.com and use the promo code BATTLELINE. And hey, before we hit this interview with Jack Carr, I want to remind you guys, we do have the Etsy store open, the BattleLine Podcast Vault at battlelinepodcast.etsy.com. We've got the limited edition pins up and hopefully more stuff in the future. I still want to sell some more of those. And then um, actually, as I move into this new apartment and have a better looking space than this, for those of you watching on YouTube, um, we'll work on some new products, hopefully. But check out battlelinepodcast.etsy.com. You are not going to want to miss this episode. Be sure to subscribe wherever you're listening to hear all of our latest stuff. But with that, let's get right into it. city to New York City, from planet Earth to extraterrestrial life in space, a podcast with no equal, engaged in unconventional warfare through your speakers and headphones. This is a show about embracing the suck, conquering your demons, and finding God in the face of adversity. Chris Tonto Peranto. Switch is on. Mother I'm going to shoot you in the face. Ian Scotto. You know, Ian and I have been dating for a long time. You are now tuned into the Battle Line Podcast. The Switch is on Battle Line podcast here with a friend of the show, guy that I've actually known for a while now, Navy SEAL, host of the Danger Close podcast and author, creator of the Terminalist series and the author of the latest Only the Dead, the final book in the James Reese series in the uh, Terminalist series, right? Or you're, you're looking at like book. it might not I don't know where that came through, but we can go with it just to keep people talking. I'll tell you what made me think of it. You know, it was because on amazon it said book six of six and i was just like oh, oh is yeah. that is it intentionally meant to be book six of six so it's going to continue that's right uh it's uh they say like so you know how many there are so sure if sure three books out that's three of three or you know book one of six or two of six if it's already out it's no which six. makes sense i wasn't sure if you were billing this as like the conclusion of the series which would be kind of crazy and the book does not come off in any way as this is the conclusion so i was kind of confused there but yeah, before we recorded, you were wondering how long it's been. So we are now at episode 185. You were back on episode 28 when we launched the show three years ago for Savage Sun. And what I was reflecting on that's so wild is basically I I first heard of you through Brad Thor. And he was like, Jack Carr is going to be the next big thing. He did the opposite of what I did. He was a SEAL and now he writes these books. I get to hang with these SEALs after the, writing all these books. And then your career just took off. And the last time that you were on, you were talking about, hey, I have this uh, this series in the works with Chris Pratt, the terminalist. And the truth is so many authors or people from all different backgrounds have projects that just either don't take off the way you expect them to do. But for you, 
I mean, the truth is like I'm sitting watching UFC and you're ringside with all these other or cage side with all these other celebrities. And it's it's just awesome to see how far your career has come in, in three years. It's it's amazing. Oh, man. Thank you so much. Yeah, that that ring or cage side seat. Uh, Mel Gibson was right there, which was awesome. And I I should have asked him for a selfie or whatever, because everybody else was. And now I'm kicking myself because, uh, you know, growing up with uh, of course Mad Max and Road Warrior and Lethal Weapon and all that stuff, I, I really, I'm kicking myself for not getting a photo with him. Um, and also in the show, so I had a little cameo in the Terminal List series and they wouldn't let me do a little car crash. It looked like a little, just a kind of little fender bender essentially. And uh, I'm glad after I saw it, I was like, oh, okay. Cause it was actually pretty violent, much more violent than it comes off on screen. So they wouldn't let me do it. So a stunt man came in to do it. And uh, he's a legendary Hollywood stunt man named Nick Rogers. And he doubled Mel Gibson jumping off that building and lethal weapon handcuffed the business guy. Uh, so that was kind of cool. So I got to talk to, to Mel Gibson about that. But uh, but yeah, things have been pretty busy since we last talked. And when we when we last talked, uh, it was before Savage Sun had hit the New York Times list. Uh, and that was yeah. my first book to hit the New York Times list, the third one. And then uh, the two, the first two go, came on after that. So they've all been New York Times bestsellers now. Uh, and the last one was number one across the board. But when I talked to you last, yeah, they hadn't. And I was like, you know, that's when you're growing up and you're reading all these books by uh, David Morrell and Andrew Quinnell and J.C. Pollock and Mark Golden and uh, Nelson DeMille. And you're seeing at the top of it says uh, New York Times bestseller or number one New York Times bestseller. So growing up, that's what, yeah. uh, you know, that's what you want. And uh, so after I talked to you and it was probably because I talked to you, hits the New York Times list. Let's, and, let's be uh, honest, and, Joe Rogan and Tucker Carlson, those don't hurt. Well, you know, those were all interesting all afterward. So uh, wow. the New York Times list and then Joe texted and said, hey, uh, do you want to come on down? I said, of course, absolutely. Uh, and then Chris posts a video after that as well. And then later that summer, Tucker has me on. So all those things happened after. And it's interesting because in the lead, like I've known Joe for a while. I've known Chris for a while since he optioned the, the book. It's been a, been a couple of years since the optioned first novel. Um, and I've we have Tucker and I had all these mutual friends who have been trying to put this together for, for years, even before I had books out, just because they, they thought we'd get along and wanted to connect us. But now, and I was kind of like, why haven't any of these kind of, you know, three people with these larger followings had me on? And you can't ask because then it makes things weird, you know? Sure. So you can't ask. Um, but then now I am so glad that none of those guys had me on or said anything until after I hit the New York Times list, because now it just takes off the board. People say, oh, must be nice. The only reason you made the New York Times list is because Rogan had you on or Chris Pratt said something you were on Tucker. And uh, I like that that is not the case. So now I thank them for not saying anything in the lead up and then only after it hit the New York Times list uh, having me on. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. And it's like, at the end of the day, who even cares what those people think? You know that you put a lot of quality into your work. You know, the fact that, you, like you said, honestly, in the prologue of the book, like you lived this life. So that's how you're able to write about this. You're not someone who, as you say, who has to have conversations with these kind of guys, because you actually have been there and done that. It's kind of the same thing as, uh, you know, who I work with Chris Peranto when we talk about stuff, which by the way, I'm sorry, he couldn't be here. He gets these like speaking engagements last minute. And I was wondering with what you do, I mean, podcast host, author, and, and you know, a whole array of other things overseeing a, a hit show. Do you do any of the public speaking stuff? Because, you know, for him, every now and again, last minute, it'll be like, we need to have you for this speech in Colorado. So 
Yeah, no, I don't do that. I've done it a little bit in the past, but I don't enjoy it. Um, I like, I'm much more, I, I prefer going to a, an independent bookstore and sitting down and signing books, giving a little bit of a, you know, kind of intro type thing question, um, saying thank you to people who uh, get the book or have been with me for a while or took a risk on me as a new author and told a friend. So I much prefer to do that. Uh, I do get requests for the speaking stuff, but there's just one, I don't like it. And two, it's uh, there's no time for it with all these other things going on. It's it's uh, I'm trying to get better, more efficient with my day and time and that sort of things as more projects pile up. And they're all fantastic projects. The, the, the James Reese series and then I have this nonfiction book on the barracks bombing in 1983 coming out fall of uh, 2024. So about a year and a half from now, it's my first uh, step into the nonfiction world. And then all these scripts for the spinoff show and then for the second season of Terminal List called True Believer, which is based on the second novel. And then all the other things that go along with just posting on socials, uh, yeah. saying thank you people on socials, writing a blog, coming up with a plan that uh, on how you're going to launch this next book or all that sort of thing. Uh, the, the days are pretty busy. Uh, and then the podcast. Yeah. I've, thus far, I've read everyone's book who has come on the podcast, uh, some a little quicker than I would like. Um, but I don't know if that's, I'm always going to be able to do that or not, but up to this point I have, and that's a lot more work as you know, than sure. maybe people uh, just uh, listen every now and again, or watch every now and again, it's a lot of work to prepare. Um, and oh, yeah. you know, you can't have somebody else maybe read it and give you some questions, but that just feels weird to me. And I feel like someone would make a mistake and I'd ask someone a question meant for some other guest or something would stay in if they copied and pasted or so anyway, I don't, I, I've read and come up with all the, all my own questions up to this point, but it is a lot more work than people would think. Yeah. Yeah. You don't want to say something stupid like me being like, this is the last book of the series by accident. No, but... I understand that though. I think that's strange also how they, how they word that. You really have to kind of think about it. It's like, oh, okay. There's six of these things. And yeah, no, it makes sense. No. And I know the same thing with like Brad Thor when he has the, the final, you know, the latest book out, they're going to do the same thing. So it makes sense, but yeah, I could relate to what you're saying in terms of not liking the public speaking. I've done it once. And for me, I think people assume if you're a radio host or you do with what you do, meeting one-on-one -on -one with readers that, oh, you like being the center of attention. And, and I really don't. And it's a totally different thing. I think like this is way more of a personal meeting medium talking one-on-one -on -one with someone whose work you respect or speaking with the readers who enjoy your work. It's so much different to me than being up on a stage and everyone's eyes on you. Um, like Chris really thrives off that. It's not something I personally enjoy. No, me neither. And I don't think I'm very good at it, you know, because I a lot of times I get up there and they ask me to talk about or when I when I've done it in the past, um, you know, see stuff, leadership stuff, that sort of a thing. And, you know, for me, that's not I, I, I that's not what I do. And for me, I kind of think like if you haven't, it's a lot of it's a lot of it's pretty basic. Um, you know, do the right thing, establish trust up and down the chain of command, you know, like just do be a good person, help people along, mentor people along, give people credit, like all that sort of thing. Um, and I'm kind of, when I'm up there talking about this stuff or when I've done it in the past in my mind, I'm thinking, if you haven't figured this out yet, like I, me up here is not helping you. Like, you know, you're forced to be in here. Probably it's a company. You got to go in, you got to spend your two hours. They have a budget allocated every quarter for, to bring someone in for leadership development or professional development or whatever it might be. And this time it's you and okay, you go up there, but it's just, it kind of like the, and some people are great at it and they really inspire sure. and that sure. stuff. But for me, I just feel like it's more like the monkey dance type thing, get on stage. And I just, that's how I feel anyway, but whether that's true or not. Um, and I just don't, I just don't enjoy it. So yeah, I don't do it. Yeah. And, and also you really took an unconventional path. I would say it is the stereotype typical thing for a Navy SEAL or someone in special operations 
to be that public speaker for consulting companies or to write a nonfiction memoir about themselves, um, to go into contracting. I mean, when you said, I want to create this whole new universe based on my experiences, based on guys that I served with, and then have it become this hit show on Amazon, it's it's a very unique path that you went down. Yeah, but it was, it was you know, by design from the beginning, um, whether I recognized it or not early on, uh, I'd had two things I wanted to do with my life. And one was serve my country in uniform, specifically as a SEAL. And I found out about SEALs when I was seven. Uh, and then as I'm reading everything I can find in the local library on special operations, back then, most of it was on Vietnam. And by yeah. most of it, I mean, there wasn't that much in the early 80s, mid 80s. Dick Marcinko. Marcinko was, he was 90, he was early 90s. Um, so there wasn't anything by him. There was the Delta Force um, by Charlie Beckwith. That was out there. I read that immediately. Um, that came out mid 80s. Uh, there was um, uh, Five Years to Freedom, Nick Rowe out there about Vietnam being a POW in Vietnam, Army Special Forces guy. There's a couple of things here and there. And there was uh, from the back of Soldier of Fortune magazine, there was um, like videos. I think you can still get them in beta, beta and VHS that kind of showed some SEAL training and then showed some video from Vietnam. Uh, and there were some magazine articles here and there and some mentions here and there. But but not much. So by the time I was 10, I was my mom's librarian. So I grew up surrounded by books, a love of reading. And by the time I was 10, I started to read the things that my parents were reading. That was the, my transition from reading, I'd say, young adult fiction to start re reading the same types of things my parents were. And by sixth grade, uh, when I was 11, for sure, I am reading the same kind of thrillers at the same level that, that I'm writing and, and reading today. Uh, so I started to build this foundation in the art of storytelling from the masters. And I didn't look at it like that. I was just enjoying these books and I'm enjoying reading these books with protagonists, with main characters that have backgrounds that I want in real life one day. So yeah, back then, if you're, if you, even if you didn't read during the, the 80s uh, and even in the 90s um, and just watch TV or movies, the typical background of somebody was that they were a Marine sniper in Vietnam. They were Army Special Forces Vietnam, Navy SEALs Vietnam, CIA paramilitary Vietnam, and now they were a cop or a private investigator. Or a man, uh, you know, on the fall guy, uh, whatever it might be, but that gave them the background to be able to do these things believably that they're doing and the solving problems and have this these skill sets. Uh, so I was reading these books by these by like David Morrell, who created Rambo back in 1972 with First Blood, a book that's never been out of print since its publication. And wow. so I figured like, oh, David Morrell must have done some research into this, or Nelson DeMille, uh, he must have done some research. And Nelson DeMille was a Marine, or sorry, was an Army infantry officer in Vietnam. Um, but, uh, so I'm reading these guys, these books, but I'm reading them to enjoy, but also for a little bit of education, uh, and Hey, these guys must've done some research into these characters and backgrounds into the CIA, into the seals, whatever it might be. Um, so I knew that I was going to write those kind of books one day, but I thought of them as two distinct, distinctly different entities first serve, then write these thrillers. I didn't realize just how much overlap there was going to be until I sat down and started writing that first one. And after I started doing that, it really became evident that it wasn't just going to be the getting sniper weapon systems and calibers right and, uh, you know, saying magazine uh, correctly and not clip like a lot of others. Um, and uh, it became evident that the feelings and emotions behind these things downrange were going to find their way into the pages of this novel. And I wasn't going to have to go out there and interview people who had had these experiences because I could just think back to, 
what it was like to be ambushed in, let's say, Baghdad 2006. And then I take that and I apply that to my character. And he might be getting ambushed on the streets of Los Angeles or, uh, say, in Spain or some, wherever it might be. Um, but I can take those feelings and emotions and apply them to a completely fictional narrative. So I think that's what really made it stand out. But it's a different, it was a different way. Most people would write, uh, would look at the Marcinko uh, kind of a model and say, oh, look, you can write this nonfiction and that gets you out there and gets you published. And you've already talked about your life now. What do you do next? Oh, you can have a, uh, a series of thrillers that come out that now build your, whatever you're building, your audience. Um, but that was never the way I wanted to go. I always wanted to forge my own path and do it a little differently than anybody else. You, you might know this because you guys are friends and, and I know that he kind of helped you to get to where you are, but Brad Thor's story growing up is, is extremely similar to yours when we've had him on. It's the same thing of like reading the same books his parents read and getting into this whole universe and then wanting to become a writer. So I guess there, there's some similarities there. Yep, he did. And he said, I think it was one of your podcasts where he said that he he wrote first, but now he can't go back and be a SEAL or something along. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, just because it, it's natural to do the military thing first, because, you know, there are age restrictions. It makes sense to do it when you're younger um, and then do the uh, then start writing thrillers. But Brad's been amazing to me from day one. And what and what I really appreciated about him is that he was so forthright and honest with me the first time we talked uh, in that he kind of did a little interview with me because so many people wanted to you know talk to him. And I, now I know how many people tell you that they have a book idea. And uh, so now I get it. But uh, back then he took a, he took the time to have a call with me and he was interviewing me. And I think if I had like, asked him questions like, oh, can you make money at this? Or, you know, essentially I just told him the same story we just talked about here about growing yeah. up and this love reading and, and all of this. And and the only reason he really took the call was because a friend that a uh, mutual friend told him some things I did in the field teams and he took it as a as a thank you. Um, so that's the, the anyway, he, so that's why I did it. But what he told me was like, Okay, if you write this thing, I can let I'm gonna shoot her know it's coming. And then he said, I'm not gonna help you. Don't send me any chapters. Don't ask me for any advice. Um, but uh, but if you finish this thing, which he thought I would not, because most people that tell authors they're gonna write a book don't, uh, he's like, I can let them know it coming, it's coming. And then I called him back a year later and said it's done. Uh, and so he he let Simon and Schuster know it was coming. But I appreciated that he did not say, "Oh yeah, just shoot me a chapter every now and again," or you know, just kind of like offhandedly thinking that I won't. And then I did, and then maybe I would have. And then he he's busy writing books. He's doing all his stuff too. Yeah. Um, so now I really appreciated him saying no. And it also didn't give me a crush. It didn't give me like, oh, I'll send this to Brad. He'll let me know if it's so, if it's good. It didn't give me any, it, I didn't have anyone to send it to. So I really appreciate that now. Cause now I get those questions and being so, you know, so busy, people want to send you chapters and ideas and all this stuff. Yeah. And like, you know, and, and, you, and I know I don't want to do it for a couple of reasons because I don't want it to influence my writing. You know what I mean? And the lawyers at Simon and Schuster don't want me to look at anything because, you know, you don't want someone to have some sort of a weird, like, like, oh, you stole my idea type of the type sure. of thing. I don't want to deal with that. So I think Nelson DeMille did something. I think he said uh, years ago, he said something like, uh, I'll either read it or I'll blurb it. Uh, which one do you want me to do? And uh, and people will be like, oh, I want you to blurb it. And uh, so we just give a blurb or maybe have a, an assistant read it and give a blurb or something like that, that he'd edit. Um, so now I see that now, you know, time is, you know, this is why I appreciate people listening to podcasts, people uh, buying the book, listening to the book, uh, just following on social, making a comment, whatever it is, because that's time they're never going to get back. So that's something I take very seriously and always is at the forefront of my mind, whether I'm 
writing a sentence in the book or doing a post on Instagram. Um, I, I, I take that extremely seriously because of that trust we talked about earlier. Uh, sure. They never, you know, they trusted me with this time and that's a, it's a serious responsibility. So um, whether it's a, a blog post, Instagram, Twitter, book, uh, podcast guest and question, whatever it is, um, as much thought goes into any one of those things as the other. Absolutely. And you could tell that these people who have become your friends genuinely loved your work. Like when I hear Joe Rogan interview you, and when I hear Brad Thor talk about your work, they've become genuine fans. And these are people that I know you're fans of. So it's it's always like surreal that people who, whose work you respect are now fans of the stuff that you're putting out there. I'm wondering now, like I said, overseeing a hit show, writing these books now pretty much yearly, a new book every year in, in the series. And as well as doing a podcast, you know, you're very open about the fact and you spoke about it when you're on with us having a special needs son. I mean, how do you balance that work life balance? I, I'm sure it's got to be just very hard to do. Well, I'm exhausted, and you can probably tell by looking at me right now. Um, this is full of coffee. Um, nice. and- you know, I, I don't want any of my kids, we have three kids, the middle one has these severe special needs and needs 24-7 care forever, um, but I never want them to have, like, their memory of me be, he was always working type of a thing, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, like, that's where our little guy, our little guy hurt his back on a trampoline, and so he's been having some issues with his back, and so he called, and, and I was in the middle of something, and he said, Dad, can you pick me up at, at school, my back's hurting, so I stopped what I was doing, jumped in the truck, and and drove on out to school to get him, and then we ran some errands together, and, um, but it definitely adds some time to uh, completion dates, it definitely pushes it definitely pushes uh, deadlines to the right um, a little bit. And then I write very late at night, which is getting harder, even though it's just a couple of years past the last time we talked. Uh, Savage Sun, I pulled some all-nighters and, you know, it was, you know it's, it's an all-nighter just like any other all-nighter and it's tough, whatever, but you just push through and do it. Uh, this time, it was harder and it's only a few years later. And, uh, you know, just being a little bit older, those, those um, all-nighters are, are getting harder to do. So uh, I need to get more effective and efficient with that time, figuring out, figuring things out a little bit better. I have a team now that's, uh, that's helping a little more, like multiple agents for different things, uh, blockers to kind of take the first uh, kind of inputs or whatever, uh, filters on that side of, of things. Um, I have an amazing publicist, David Brown at Simon & Schuster. Oh, amazing. Been with me from the very beginning. We're dear friends now. Um, and my uh, my publisher, Emily Bessler, Emily Bessler Books, incredible. Uh, so we have a great, great team. Have an assistant now that can help with some things, some of like the uh, kind of the scheduling and, and some of the, the busier side of things. Um, so uh, it, it's tough. And especially if you're doing your, and with, for the podcast, it's like scheduling guests, like that Ironclad takes care of that for me, my podcast production team. I don't have to like, I can do the intro and then they can kind of take it and deal with the schedule from there. So all those little things, those little efficiencies really add up. And I want to get much better at that over this next year when I have multiple projects now with (laughs) multiple shows, uh, with the nonfiction, the fiction, continuing the podcast, uh, we'll film this next one internationally. So I'll be over there on set, not the whole time, but uh, I'll go back and forth a few times. And what uh, what's that piece is being uh, you know shot around? Um, so yeah, it's and and I'm just a sponge on that side of the house because it's so different. And I got so lucky on the script side of the house that David DeGilio, the showrunner, uh, and Chris and Antoine, of course, wanted me involved from the very beginning. So really, since December of 2019, um, I've been involved in this creative process that's more group oriented uh, than say the books because the books that is only me. The, the title is only me and I, the title is comes to mind because we're working through the title for the spinoff series. 
And there are a lot of people that have input and it'll get tested and, and all that sort of a thing. Um, but for this, I mean, it's just me. And I just send it to Simon and Schuster and say, what do you think of this one? Um, and I do that very early in the process so that I'm not worried about it. I'm not wasting bandwidth, worried about a title as I'm typing away. But uh, that was a very long answer uh, to uh, those those days. And uh, just juggling kids, family, uh, and doing all these things. You know, you just do the best you can just like in any other profession any other industry uh just do the best you can and try to be there and be a better husband a better father each and every day try to make the each book better move the genre forward even if it's just by a degree with each each book um so it's just yeah you know, it's just like anything else just trying to trying to do the best best i can and and uh juggle all these things and um uh and still still be there for for my family i canceled a lot of things this i guess that's another way to put it i canceled almost anything that was just me which was uh, a few hunts uh okay. so i was also canceled this fall Last fall, this fall, they're going to cancel as well. Uh, just there's so much on the on the plate, and I can't come back from let's say two weeks overseas filming, come back, be here for a day, and then go on a two week hunt to Alaska. Like, uh, no, I'll be home with my family. That's understandable. And and when you're talking about how the book is just you, that in itself is unique because I think any of us on the inside know, you know, anyone who works in media, most books by special operators or even public figures that we've had on the show. And there's nothing wrong with this. They're working with co-writers. A lot of the times they're just orating their story and they're working with a co-writer or a ghostwriter. And they're the ones really putting in the work to make this a coherent book for you. As you said, it's all you. Now, this book, Only the Dead, interesting thing is I thought how it starts where I am on the Northeast, uh, like that whole Rhode Island area and Martha's Vineyard and all that. And, and what it got me wondering was how far ahead do you think of where James Reese is going to be? Um, you know, like, did you know that where this book was going to take place a few books in the past? Are you thinking two or three books ahead of the game of where you want to take this series? I am. And uh, the first one I had, I wrote down like six, seven, eight, nine different one page executive summaries. And I wanted to start with Savage Son, the one we talked about a couple of years ago. But I, and that that came from reading The Most Dangerous Game back in sixth grade. And I read that. It's a short story. Oh, well. Wow. Richard Connell, and I knew that one day uh, I would write a thriller that paid tribute to that short story. So that was one I really wanted to start with. But I knew the characters weren't developed enough yet to explore the theme that I explore in there, which is the dark side of man through the dynamic of hunter and hunted. Um, so I knew that I had to come out of the gate with something that was hard hitting, that was visceral, that was violent, that would get people to, and quite honestly, get a New York publishing house to notice. And so it was very obvious that The Terminalist was that story to introduce these characters. And at the end of that one, I thought, you know, it would be disingenuous just to pick my character up and then drop him into a new save the world type scenario. And he needs to go on a journey after the traumatic events of the first novel. He needs to learn to live again. He needs to find his next mission in life, find his next purpose. And I kind of thought in the back of my head that my publisher would just cut out the first quarter of that book because um, it was it's, it takes a risk and it's definitely different than uh, than I would say that most other authors have done. Um, and uh, it definitely wasn't the safe move. Uh, the safe move would have been to cut that whole journey out and just have him up here where he appears in Africa and Mozambique and just go from there. Um, but that's, yeah, I'm so glad that they didn't. And that's what's so cool about having 100% complete creative control over the novel. Um, there's no one who's ever even hinted at Simon & Schuster that, hey, do you mind laying off on this stuff a little bit? Or maybe maybe if you do this, you'd get more of an audience or whatever. And same thing with my agent, no uh, recommendations at all. Uh, and I like that because 
if something doesn't work, if this book doesn't work. And the first review came out the other day and I was, it's such a relief because you never know when you put something out there, you're yeah. kind of like, all right, here it is. And first review came out, I think two days ago, and it was a, it was a great one, a 10 out of 10 from the real book spy. He said some very nice things. Um, and so that's kind of a relief to get that, like see the first one out there and you're like, oh, great. But I like that those, that my publisher doesn't even hint at where it should go next or things that I should do or change. And same thing with my agent, because if it doesn't work, I can't blame them. I can't say, man, I took their advice and it didn't work. And, you know, so that's, so that's all on me. So I like that. There's complete ownership right there and hundred percent creative control scripts little different scripts. Uh, there are a lot of people working on, on these scripts, even if uh, it's for a TV show, if you see something that says, you know, it's episode five written by so-and-so it's really a group type of a thing uh, of that script has seen even, even its, it's initial uh, kind of out of the box over time, it changes because of things that change in episode one, two, three, four on day of filming, essentially. And then that has to be uh, kind of morphed in to episode six, seven, eight. Um, so it's a really dynamic process. And a lot of people are involved from, from actors to executive producers to writers. And it's a really interesting process. Um, but I am thinking ahead on all the novels. Um, some of those that I wrote down in that first slew of six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 different executive summaries um, have become future novels. But this one in particular, I was that's a, I got invited to a wedding out in uh, Hannesport, uh, Kennedy wedding back in, a buddy of mine married into the, the Kennedy family in the summer. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's a crazy story in itself. Yeah, it was wild. I mean, I was with Ethel Kennedy. I'm like walking her into, down into the breakfast thing and we sat together and I got to talk to her for the longest time. And uh, when I was in that house, it's like you're sitting there and you're looking at a photo and you're watching, you're seeing a photo of JFK, watch the election results come in. And wow. then it's a little side table next to like this rocking chair. In my mind, it's a rocking chair. It might be a chair. And uh, and then you're looking at the chair and that's the exact chair that he's sitting in in the photo that's right on the table next to it. So you're wow. in wow. place with all this history. Um, so anyway, that's where I started thinking about a part of this book. And that was the summer of 2017. Summer oh. 2017. So yeah, and so we're about to be in the summer of 2023. The book is out May yeah. 16th. So that's that's crazy. Um, the timeline. Yeah. All right. I hope you're enjoying this interview with Jack Carr. Always a pleasure and an honor speaking with Jack Carr. I know that Tonto is not here, as I say at one point in the episode. Chris is uh, at a speaking engagement, is recording this in Colorado. It was kind of a last minute thing. He did want to hop on with Jack Carr, but hey, uh, hopefully next time if we do one soon when he's back in New York in June, as uh, you'll hear later on. But before we get into everything, you know, Jack is an avid hunter and shooter. And I was actually telling the people over at Simon, Simon Schuster that Photonist Defense wanted to see if Jack could try out their stuff. And there may be something there in the future. I don't know exactly where that's gone, but it'd be cool if Jack does get a chance to try out Photonist Defense because they are the best out there. Now you can have the superpower to see in the dark with the Viper Binocular Night Vision System by Photonist Defense, which is the global leader in night vision solutions, providing more high-quality night vision capabilities than anyone. Military, law enforcement, and public safety end users utilize Photonist Defense solutions to give them the edge at night in tactical situations and rescue operations. Hunters, shooters, boaters, and enthusiasts can rely on the Photonist Defense Viper Binocular to become masters of darkness. The new Viper Binocular system carries the same features and benefits as the Photonist Defense Viper Monocular with a ruggedized body and harnesses the power of the Echo Intensifier tubes, giving you sharper images, reduced halo, 
and industry-leading ultra-fast auto-gating across the range of dynamic operations. Visit PhotonistDefense.com for more information or look for, for Photonist Defense product options from your night vision dealer. That's P-H-O-T-O-N-I-S Defense.com. This is premium night vision. If you're looking for the best night vision on the market, mil-spec night vision, look no further. PhotonistDefense.com. Also, where are you going to find the best ammo on the planet? Since, since uh, I don't have to shoot this in Zoom because it's just me, you can see right there in uh, high resolution if you put the camera on me there, Rob. Uh, they have these tins, man. They are awesome. You can still get those on the site, and I think they still have the signed Battleline Tactical tins that you could check out. So Fort Scott Munitions is a manufacturer of multi-federal patented solid copper and brass CNC spun ammunition. It's designed to tumble upon impact TUI, their trademark in soft tissue, leaving devastating wound channels for faster bleed out and quicker incapacitation. This ammunition was originally developed to innovate and improve on the standard of military-grade ammunition design. It was found that not only did the TUI ammunition outperform competitors in the self-defense industry, but it quickly became apparent that it would be a top contender for hunters alike. With the ammunition being CNC spun, the tolerances are some of the tightest on the market, ensuring that you receive the same results with each pull of the trigger. Fort Scott Munitions is available throughout privately owned businesses in all 50 states. You can go to the dealer locator at fsm.com, type in your zip code, you're going to find a dealer by you, or you can just simply go to fsm.com and get the best deal through us when you use the promo code BATTLELINE for 15% off. That's only available to you guys listening right now and watching. Use the promo code BATTLELINE at fsm.com for 15% off. All different types of ammo, a lot of stuff in stock, also great merch, great hoodies and t-shirts and hats. Check it out. Fort Scott Munitions is a proud supporter of Chris Peranto, Battleline Tactical, and the Battleline Podcast. Once again, fsm.com, promo code Battleline. When you shop there, you're not only going to get the best ammo, but you're also supporting the podcast. And this is how we keep the podcast free putting out great content, and having amazing guests like Navy SEAL and author Jack Carr. Let's get right back to it. So I am thinking, and I'm thinking, and as I'm writing the other books, I'm still thinking like, ah, where am I going to work this in? When, when makes sense to work this in? Um, but what's great about it is that downrange, you know, you, you, you're making decisions in seconds that are going to affect people to your right and left their lives. Um, and you're aggressively solving problems, you're uh, capitalizing on momentum, you are looking for gaps in the enemy's defenses, you're adapting as fast as you can, the enemy's doing the same thing to, to you. Uh, and I'm doing the same thing on the written page, but I have more time. And if I get to a place where I get a little bit stuck, or I'm like, I'm not really sure how this is going to work out. I don't need to just be, I don't need to think about that for the next three weeks until I figure it out. I can just continue on. I just put a bunch of X's, uh, whether it's in the outline or in the novel. And I continue forward knowing that I have a year to figure this out and I will figure it out. So mm -hmm. I never get stuck with a writer's block type thing. And when I talk about those executive summaries that I do, that's been my process from the very beginning. And it, it, it same with this book and the, the, the next one that I'm working on now is I take, write this one page executive summary. I have a title. I have a theme that's either, that's a, usually a sentence. It was a couple words. Now it's about a sentence. Um, and I ask myself, is this worth 
the next year, year and a half of my life? And if the question, that answer is yes, then I read it one more time and I say, hey, if someone would pick this book up and read something similar in the jacket right here in this part, or if it's a paperback on the, on the back, uh, would they be willing to invest time they're never going to get back in this story? And if the answer to that is probably or, or yes, then, uh, then I go all in and that's the, that's the next book. Do, do you have any fear of the series getting stale? Because I can tell you, I just saw that movie air in theaters about uh, the Nike story and, and the Air Jordan story, which, by the way, I thought was phenomenal. But during the trailers, uh, they were showing, and I wasn't even aware of this coming out, um, the Fast and the Furious 10, which I believe is coming out now. And you wonder, man, how do you keep going 10 movies? I haven't, I definitely have not seen all 10 of them. And you wonder, like, are these really, are they just pumping these out one after the other because it's a moneymaker? And I'm sure for you, like, it's so important to have that integrity and quality because for someone, they, Only the Dead may be the first bit book they put, pick up in the series. And if it's not a great book, they're, they're not, not going to continue in the series again. They're going to say, I waste the time on this. I have no interest in James Reese. I'm going to pick up Brad Thor or Vince Flynn or something. So how do you keep, and I'm wondering, like I said, do you have any fear of the series becoming stale or, or, you know, not having something new to say in every book? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's uh, not something that paralyzes me, but it's something that's back there as something I don't want to have happen. So in that respect, it's uh, it's a part of the calculus, but not uh, not as I'm writing, not as, oh, does this feel stale or is this, is, like, I'm not worried about that as I'm writing. I'm just excited to be writing because I love it. Uh, I know I'm as prepared as anyone could possibly be for this. Um, and that's due to my parents just encouraging us to read as kids and uh, making reading a natural part of my life. Um, just as any, that wasn't like forced upon me um, and me having this genuine love of it. Um, so, so I have the, so I, I know that I'm as prepared as I could possibly be in that respect. Uh, also now I've studied warfare, obviously. Um, uh, and I have this uh, experience downrange in Iraq and Afghanistan. So all these things, Things, this academic study of warfare, that personal experience uh, downrange in Iraq and Afghanistan, this foundation that's built by reading these masters in the genre, knowing the history of my genre. Um, and a lot of authors don't, for some reason, it's, it's always very uh, telling to me if someone doesn't know the history of their uh, of their genre. I mean, the history of your profession, no matter what it is, is extremely important because it's a part oh, of yeah. your or important to me anyway, I should just say it's my, my personal experience or my personal. No, I get, I mean, how, I don't know if you've seen this, you know, now as a podcast host, I've run into podcast hosts or radio hosts who go, oh, I don't really listen to podcasts. Like then how do you know what's a good interview? How do you know what's a good show? Right. And, and you really don't, if you're not a fan of the genre, I mean, musicians we have on, they, they talk about how they were influenced by everything. So I, I fully get where you're coming from. Yeah, exactly. Those influences from uh, from Richard Connell, like we talked about with Most Dangerous Game, uh, David Morell's First Blood, uh, Louis L'Amour's Last of the Breed, um, uh, Jeffrey Household's Rogue Male, like those four books uh, are really, they really move the genre forward. And they're all spaced out by, let's say, you know, 15 years apart, you know, boom, 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 20 in some cases. Uh, and but they really did move the genre forward. Uh, and I've read them all. They're all part of me. I love that I read them when I was younger uh, and I've revisited them. Uh, uh, a lot of these things I've revisited. Some things I don't want to because I don't want to uh, kind of ruin it. If I enjoyed it back in 1985 through the lens of a, a kid who hadn't had this life experience, hadn't become yeah. a sick baby, you know, whatever it is. Yeah, uh, no, I get that. Some of them I'm uh, you know, tentative around. You know, I don't think I'm going to go back to. I don't know. But uh, but I'm glad that I read them back then because it would be a different reading experience to pick those books up today uh, with a different intent behind reading them. Back then it was just enjoyment. And uh, it was such a magical reading 
reading experience, reading all those things growing up. Now today, if you're, let's say, 40 years old, 45 years old, whatever you are, and uh, you pick up one of these things with the intent of studying it or the intent of like, oh, I'm going to see if I could, could I do this? It seems kind of interesting. That's a different reading experience than reading it at age 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, or 20. Uh, back then when you're just reading it because it's uh, like uh, another form of uh, entertainment and education. Uh, and uh, today there's so many more distractions as well. Oh, but yeah. I just love that I got to read those things growing up. And then I got introduced to Joseph Campbell back in 1988 with a series of interviews he did with Bill Moyers called The Power of Myth. And my mom and I sat down and watched that. And I was, of course, enthralled with the fact that he inspired George Lucas's Star Wars. And um, and I read Hero with a Thousand Faces. And then I got The Power of Myth, which were based on those interviews with Bill Moyers. And um, I think I looked, I didn't mean to, but I think because I was introduced to the hero's journey and to Joseph Campbell so early, I think that the books that I read from then on, the movies that I watched, the TV shows that I watched, I all I filtered through that hero's journey. And even if I, whether I meant to or not, if something didn't work or I didn't like something, I wondered if it was because it uh, deviated from this hero's journey. And for those listening, there is a, uh, a mythology that surrounds a hero that is not, that is uh, that disassociated cultures that had never had any contact with each other. They have very similar mythologies, very similar hero's journeys in their mythology that they pass down generation to generation. And uh, so I think it's something that was just in us uh, innately from our time around the campfire, passing around along stories of the hunt and of warfare in order to educate that next generation, passing on those lessons learned in blood so you could continue on as a tribe or society or family. And uh, so realizing that early on uh, at such a young age, I think really did help form that foundation as well. So um, yeah, it's a uh, I, I, bottom line. It's all, it's all due to books and a love yeah. of reading. Yeah, and, and what you're saying about having that all as a part of your origin story, I've, I've definitely used the quote before in the podcast, but I always think of that Bruce Lee quote of uh, absorb what is useful, discard what is not, add what is uniquely your own. And, and there's probably just certain parts of these books where you, where it's embedded in your mind and it, you've been able to add it to your craft and add it to your tool book of what you do as an oh, yeah. author. Oh, yeah, I love that. I have two uh, copies of uh, uh, the Tao of Jeet Kune Do right over here. I have like the collector's edition and then I have the, I got a paperback edition. I got it back in the in the late 80s or something. Um, but yeah, it's a, that's a fantastic quote. And I've, I've thought about that my, well, since I read it back, uh, you know, geez, how many years ago? 30 years ago. <laughs> nice. I mean, so that's a cool thing we've learned from this podcast. I didn't know that Jack Carr was a Bruce Lee fan. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, I found, so first, you know, you, you see the movies or any martial art movies really. And then uh, you want to be a seal one day. So you figure that uh, I should probably learn how to fight and you go down and you start doing some Taekwondo stuff and you're like, okay, this is interesting. It kind of, you know, parallels some of the things that I see in movies, but uh, then you watch like Mike Tyson step in the ring and you're like, Oh, what if you get hit in the face by Mike Tyson? It's not going to, it's not going to end well. Uh, you better be fat. You better be quick. You better be out of there. You better get on your getaway sticks and learn how to sprint uh, and run uh, and never get caught. Uh, but then that kind of morphed into boxing uh, that morphed into Jeet Kune Do when I found out about that. And back then you had to really go, you had to go to Chinatown. You had to go somewhere to really like go into those martial art bookstores or martial art. Uh, like they were to sell nunchucks and throwing stars. Yeah, this and was they, long before MMA was a yeah. craze. Yeah. yeah, exactly. This is like, this is, 
is mid mid eighties, mid late eighties. Um, and then you go in there and you see the the, the Dow Jeet Kundo. Oh, what is Jeet Kundo? Interesting, you know. And then you start reading this, and then there's no internet to go to. Very few books. There's articles, uh, you know, Black Belt Magazine or, or whatever else. There there was Kung Fu Magazine. I think was one back then as well. Um, so you just pick up things wherever you possibly can, and you're a sponge. Um, but yeah, then I got into to Jeet Kundo, uh, tracked somebody down, and started learning that they were bringing in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu in the early 1990s before MMA before yeah. uh UFC before anybody really really heard of it but uh yeah the greatest then uh we're bringing it in because you want to take what's what's useful discard what's useless I mean they had uh parts of uh European fencing in there uh obviously wrestling obviously Thai boxing bot regular boxing and uh, like all these things but they're taking what's useful discarding what's useless making it uniquely their own um, yeah and that's essentially what UFC ended up doing and mixed martial arts ended yes. up doing a few yeah, no, and that makes sense why you're a fan now, beyond just being a guy who gets to call Joe Rogan a friend. Um, you know what I'm wondering is with Chris Pratt being a part of the Terminalist, has he become a friend? Has he become a guy that you get to hang out with? Yeah, he's been fantastic. Uh, so the way that happened uh, is that a buddy of mine called me out of the buddy of mine. He's a great friend now, but I hadn't talked to him in five years when he called me. And he calls me in November of 2017 so a few months before the first book comes out first book came out in march of 2018 and uh first he calls me and he's a buddy from the seal teams and he says do you remember me and i said of course jared i remember you how's it going and he says well do you remember what you did for me and i did not and he said well you're the only person as i was getting out of the military that asked me to sit down in your office talk to me about transitioning to the private sector you introduced me to people in the private sector and uh you followed up with me um and no one else did that and uh, i always wanted to say thank you and i was like no problem. You know, how's, how's everything going? How'd, how'd it turn out? And he's like, it's going great, but uh, I heard you have a book coming out. And I was like, yep, I got this uh, terminalist book coming out. I have a, a galley copy. And I learned what a galley was like two weeks before, maybe, um, which is a rough draft for those listening, essentially, that goes out to reviewers ahead of time. And uh, I said, I have this thing. I can send it to you if, you if you'd like. And he said, yeah, I'd like that. But I'd also like to send it to a friend of mine. And I said, yeah, no problem. I'll send to who, who's that. And he said, Chris Pratt. And I was like, oh, interesting. <laughs> I'll keep this in the back of my mind. <laughs> first one, I was thinking of Chris Pratt playing this role, and I was thinking of Antoine Fuqua directing. And I thought of Chris Pratt because I wanted someone, and you know, this is just kid growing up in the 80s. Now I'm writing a book that I always wanted to write, and it just makes sense to choose your star. Uh, and yeah. this is in the bedroom off our, uh, there's our office off our bedroom in Coronado, California during my last year in the SEAL teams. And uh, so of course I'm going to choose who's going to star in this. And I chose Chris Pratt. And that's because he hadn't done something like this yet. He hadn't done Guardians of the Galaxy. He hadn't done Jurassic World yet. He's not an A-lister yet. And he's Andy Dwyer on Parks and Rec. So he's likable. He's funny. He's overweight. And then I saw this transition to this character in Zero Dark Thirty where he plays a SEAL in a very small role. And I thought, look at this transition from Andy Dwyer to this seal operator and this guy seems inherently likable on and off screen chris pratt will play james reese as i'm typing away and then i'm like well i better choose the director uh antoine yep antoine i love all everything that he's done he seems awesome that's who'll direct and that's end up as who's uh we're all partners on it now and we're all executive producers and uh 
is how it ended up happening. But uh, but yeah, Chris called. Uh, uh, so he read it. So Jared read it first just to make sure it wasn't garbage. Then he uh, gave it to Chris in December. Chris read it the last week in December of 2017 and called the first week in uh, uh, January of 2018 to option it. And then he came out here uh, that summer and we went uh, to the back country for about five days together and uh, spent some time together. And yeah, he's just he's just fantastic. Just such a such a great guy. Uh, and and on set, he really set the tone, him and Antoine. Antoine's like the commanding officer for those in the military is how I, how I looked at it. And Chris was like the commander down at the tactical level leader, Antoine's strategic level leader. And they set the tone for this entire set. And so many people came up to me on set who didn't have to and said, hey, I've been part of hundreds of these things. And no set, on no set have I ever felt the way I'm feeling on this one. And that's because of those two guys up there at the top and David DeGilio, the showrunner, who's there every day, um, encouraging mentoring, uh, making it a, just a positive experience. So everybody wants to be there and bring their A game. And they're all at the, the top, the pinnacle. You, know, when you have a show like this that has a, a budget like this from a, a studio like Amazon Studios, you get the A, the a game yeah, got people. And uh, so many of them made the point of saying that they've never felt this way on a set. And that's all due to Chris and Antoine and David Gilio. Wow. I, when I hear that story, I wonder, do you believe in the whole idea of manifesting an idea or is just like putting that energy out into the world because you really made your dream come true, not just as an author, but being able to basically customize what you created for a television show, television series or Amazon series, however you want to put it. Yeah, I mean, there's more than just the manifestation of an idea. Um, it's that work, obviously, because without the work, you're not going to, you're definitely not going to get anything done. Uh, and you, even if you put in the work, though, that's the point. If you, even if you put in the work, you might not. Um, but for sure, without putting in the work, you're not going to get where you want to go or accomplish what you want to accomplish or create what you want to create. Um, but as, as far as manifesting it, it, I think it all comes back to just, this is something I talk to my kids about, is never miss an opportunity to make somebody's day. I never thought of it in those terms until I started really sitting down and people started asking me about, about this. And um, if I hadn't taken the time to uh, find Jared, ask him to come to my office. Hey, say, Hey, I heard you're getting out. Uh, you have a great reputation in the teams. Uh, you're an awesome guy. How can I help? Um, so if I hadn't yeah. taken the time to do that, if I was just like too busy or if that wasn't my thing, or if I was one of those uh, military people who was like, Oh, this person's getting out. They go in this other pile, uh, which is more common than one would think. Uh, and I never did that throughout my entire time in the military. If you were a good guy and you were staying in. I'm going to help you as much as I possibly can. If you're a good guy and you're getting out, I'm going to help you as much as I possibly can. But it all comes back to making Jared's day that day. And it's something yeah. he didn't for and then it circled back around uh, all those years later. And when I, when I was choosing Antoine and I was choosing uh, uh, Chris to star, I did had no idea that I had connections to either of them. Um, yeah. And then I ended up a connection to Antoine as well. A buddy gave an early copy to him uh, a little after Chris got, around the same time Chris read it, but Chris had it for a week maybe before. But uh, around the same time, point being, is somebody gave a copy to, to Antoine and then he wanted it as well. And uh, he called just right after, right after Chris, we got connected and... Uh, then they talked and worked it out and figured out how to partner together on it, which is, uh, which is pretty cool. Yeah, You just never know in this journey who you're going to meet and who's going to have connections to who. So it's true. Just treat everybody with respect and dignity and, and also just the way you want to be treated. All those old 
cliches, but it really is true because they may be able to hook you up in the future. And also just being a good person is, is yeah, valuable. Yeah, it wasn't that at all. You know, I never like, oh, if I, <laughs> if I have this guy into my office, if I help these guys out, maybe one yeah, day. Yeah, you weren't thinking that. Because, I mean, I know yeah. the stereotype is every Navy SEAL becomes like a famous author, but but like in reality, it's what, like probably 1% or less than 1% of those probably guys. Less. Probably yeah. 99% you've never heard of. Yeah. Oh, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And, uh, and, and most don't take the the route that, that I took. Um, uh, and that's, you know, and people ask me about the nonfiction side of going to write something, you know, about my background, but people did so much more than I could ever have hoped to have done in the military. I don't know. I mean, if I remember correctly, 20 year career as a SEAL. It was a, yeah, it was a good, it was a good run. It was a good run there for a while. <laughs> I mean, combat veteran of multiple deployments. I think you've done a hell of a lot. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. But so many people have done so much more. Um, so I, so I, I that, that's not the route I'm taking in the nonfiction space either. Uh, my nonfiction space uh, entries, uh, like I said, the historical side of different terrorist events. So that's the uh, 1983 Beirut barracks bombing. We the first in a in a series that explores those, and I'm writing those with an amazing guy, James Scott. He's an historian and a Pulitzer Prize finalist. Uh, he hasn't done something like this with anyone else before. He has five books out. They're all fantastic. Most of them around world war ii um and such an amazing guy so we're uh i i was trying to figure out like hey i'm gonna write these fiction these stories and i got the idea essentially from tom clancy growing up through the 80s he just had his thrillers and then in the early 90s he starts writing nonfiction with someone who's a subject matter expert in whatever he's writing about whether it's aircraft carrier tank like air wing he had a bunch of different nonfiction that came out in the uh in the starting in the 90s anyway so i knew i was always going to step into that space and it had to be uh unique and uh you know appropriate thoughtful respectful um and authentic to me which is the terrorism side of the house and just growing up during a time where seeing the 1983 Beirut barracks bombing on newsweek and time on our on our uh, uh dining room table seeing the 1979 iranian hostage crisis um uh, remembering walter cronkite counting the days that uh uh american citizens had been detained in iran um they're held hostage in iran um uh, remembering desert one when that happened um um, uh, moving on to TWA 847, also on the covers of Time and Newsweek, uh, Kelly Laurel, PW, uh, TWA, um, or Pan Am 103. Um, so all these things were very impactful to me growing up. And uh, now I want to go back and really explore them um, in, a, in a thoughtful, respectful way. And uh, in this case, 1983 Beirut Barracks bombing, it uh, there's an there's new newly declassified information that's out there now oh, wow. that can be explored. These uh, these families who have never opened their the attics um, to their in their homes that have boxes with photos and letters from their child who didn't make it home from that are opening those attics up and those boxes up to uh, to us. That's um, incredible. Yeah, there's still people who survived and who are too who dug their friends out of the rubble, and um, it's so there's there's a it's an incredible story, and there hasn't been essentially the seminal work written on it yet. So, um, so yeah, we're working on that that right now. So that's more me as far as writing a uh, uh, something in the nonfiction space rather than a you know here's my here's my my time in uniform as a SEAL type of a book. There's yeah, which, of which is great. I can't believe you're putting even more on your plate, but it's also fair to say, and you talk about it in these books, like in Only the Dead in the James Reese series, there's plenty of nonfiction in these books. It's just that the names and the places and all that have changed, but there definitely is some historical stuff that you've lived in these books, just written from the perspective of someone else. Um, getting back to Chris Pratt, you know what I was curious about, especially with you being a father and all that, 
did you see the new Super Mario Brothers movie? I thought he did an incredible job. Oh, no, he was super excited about it. And then my little guy went this last weekend with his friends twice. But he's at the age, uh, so he's 12 now. And he's at the age where uh, he wants to go with his friends, not uh, not mom and dad. So I haven't seen it yet. Uh, with everything going on, I have not seen it yet. But uh, my little guy loved it. And I know Chris was super fired up to, to do that part. I went to go see it with um, Adam, who I work with here on Long Island, and him and his whole family and me and his friends all dressed up as Mario Brothers characters. Oh, we're taking pictures with us in the theater. We saw it the <laughs> night that it came out. And and I will say there's plenty of stuff just as an adult you'll enjoy in the movie. I mean, uh, without ruining anything, the soundtrack, they went very throwback. I mean, there's ACDC in the, in the uh, music in the movie, and there's the Beastie Boys and a ton of stuff like that. So there's definitely a nod to the fact that there's a, there's parents and, and grown adults seeing this movie. It was not like, you know, I went to go see Sonic the Hedgehog and I was like, what am I doing here? This is purely a kid's movie. Um, the Mario Brothers movie is not like that. And the, the thing that they've been saying in the media, and it's very true, there was no um, selling of any agenda in this movie. There was nothing that you saw where they were saying... Um, Let's try to push some type of PC culture, which we see far too often in anything that's supposed to be marketed to kids. None of that was in this. So I couldn't recommend that movie more highly. Oh, that's fantastic. Now I got to go see it. And I love when they do that, when they put things in for the parents, like the ACDC soundtrack or Beastie Boys. Uh, yeah. So I love when shows do that. And, and I, you notice it when I, we watch things with our with our 12-year-old in particular, when they take the time out to do things like that for the parents, which is <laughs> greatly appreciated. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm still a fan of like the original Ninja Turtles movie. I love that stuff. So I think those movies, they, they're they great for anyone of any age and also for kids. Um, you know, last question I wanted to ask you, because I, I know you got other things to get to, but we were speaking about um, how Tucker Carlson is one of those guys who helped your career, had you on the show. And I mean, you can't escape the news right now with Tucker Carlson. It's just like the biggest thing going on right now. I was just wondering your take on it, because I, I think this guy, um, no matter what people's opinions are, are on him, he had an absolutely historic run. He definitely challenged the system at large. He was the first guy in a primetime show who would who would challenge things going on with the FBI or the CIA. No one was doing that prior to him. Um, what's your feelings on the fact that he no, he's I'm sure he's going to do something that's going to be major, but he'll no longer be on Fox News in primetime. And I think it's going to greatly affect Fox News at large. Yeah, I mean, we'll see how that plays out. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I did uh, I did text him right after just to say, you know, say, hey, just heard the news and, and that sort of thing. Um, but uh, I'm very curious to see what happens. It's uh, it, it's you know, if you're not thinking about it, not in that world, I think you're surprised. So I'm I'm not in that world. So I was surprised by it. But then when you take a breath and think about it and you look at Fox in in general, and if you really put some thought into it, then maybe it's, maybe it's not that surprise of a move. And maybe it's a surprise that it didn't happen earlier um, because, you. I mean, you are standing up against uh, the, the status quo. Uh, you're standing up against Washington establishment. You're standing up against um, that ecosystem, uh, for lack of a better term, with all those lobbyists all that money, all that power, and you are challenging it. And you have the most coveted slot 
on cable news and the largest audience. Um, and you are standing up and challenging these people who are not used to being challenged. Uh, and if they are, it's by someone who can't make as much of an impact as Tucker. So I'm very curious to see where, where he goes and what he does next. And he's an, he's a incredibly intelligent guy. Um, like, and such an, and such a nice person also, if you know him personally, uh, he's just a great guy. Yeah, and I heard it said it was like Bill O'Reilly on Twitter was was like, oh, I think he's gonna go on to do a Joe Rogan esque podcast. But like, there's only one Joe Rogan. I, I don't think anybody's gonna be able to do the same thing that he does. And I think Tucker uh, created something very original that was unlike anything else on TV. Um, but I'm just wondering what it is next. And I mean, when you just look at the ratings that he has, once again, people of, of all backgrounds listening to this show, you may be a fan, you may not. But with the ratings that he got, I mean, he could do whatever he wants at this point. And I think Fox News needed him more than he will ever need Fox News. Yep, I think that's I think that is a a, uh, a very valid assessment. Um, uh, and we'll see. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see what he what he does next, whatever it is. I know he's going to be very thoughtful about it and take his time with it. And or I should say, I know. I suspect. Yeah, it's a but but he's not going to fall off the map. We know that's not going to happen. He's he's got something up his sleeve. Maybe. I mean, we'll see. It's uh, yeah, it's interesting. Once you once you have that, uh, uh, and it can be in anything that financial freedom. And we talked about it with with Joe Rogan. You know, you have a, a, a that financial. It's very freeing. To, you you have uh, to be less politically correct. You have that fuck you money, as they say. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But, you know, and that's going to be different for everybody. Um, you know, uh, so it's really about that, that freedom back in the day, you know, freedom used to be, I don't know, X number of acres and depending on, you know, just like financial freedom today varies depending on uh, your personal situation, but that used to be used to be land. Um, it used to be uh, cattle, uh, whatever it was, whatever that it was for you back then. It's different today in that, uh, that, that financial freedom essentially has, uh, has trumped the other ones because the other ones are under such attack constantly from within, um, not necessarily from without, by um, parties, institutions, people who you would think would understand their history and realize why we have this First Amendment and how uh, powerful that makes us as a country, uh, while at the same time they're doing all these other things that enrich them, help them. And um, I when I think of that, I think of it in terms of uh, politics and lobbyists and now tech companies um, and everything else up there with the defense industry and pharmaceutical industry and all these people and entities and corporations that can pump so much money into a uh, gigantic bureaucracy um, who does not benefit from the citizens being free and having a First Amendment and in particular a Second Amendment, um, but having a, a they disdain this thing, uh, these freedoms and do what they you know, whatever they can to curtail them. So it's a very interesting time to, to be alive. But going back to what led me down that tangent was the, uh, the ability of uh, financial freedom today to really just that uh, allow you to um, to experience some of those freedoms that are being taken away from people that don't have financial freedom. So yeah, yeah, there's so many people who want to say something, um, whether it's in the public space, you know, in actual person, or if they want to say it on Twitter or Instagram. Uh, but a lot of intelligent people in the back of their mind, myself included at times in my life, say, if I put this out there, I could lose my job, I could lose my livelihood. And like, that's hanging above 
anyone's head, especially if they're working for a major corporation. And like, those guys don't have to worry about that. Yeah, it's interesting. That's, that's why I liked in the pages of these books, weave in all those things. And, you know, like I said, no one at Simon & Schuster has ever even hinted that I need to lay off any of that. So, um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, I think uh, Twitter and social media is tough because it becomes that echo chamber and how many people are, are you, whose minds are you changing? What kind of a, a debate are you going to have in, you know, one sentence increments back and forth where someone's already made up their mind to, to hate you or to hate whatever it is, because they saw a tweet from somebody with a lot of followers that essentially programmed them on how to think of something without doing their, rec putting the requisite time, energy, and effort into the issue at hand, studying the is issue before making a decision about it. So when you're dealing with that kind of a, a mindset and a person on Twitter, um, you know, uh, I don't know how much, how much, any minds are going to change by jumping into a back and forth, but that, that's why I put that weave things into the novels. Yeah. Um, and that's why when I do see your Twitter, you're just out there promoting what you're working on. You're not one of these guys of which there are many Navy SEALs who get into the weeds on every little political topic. And I see that you don't do that. I'm sure it's calculated. I'm sure it's by design. There's a reason not to do that because yeah, you have better things and more important things going on. And that's why your success. And one last thing, actually, here, when you were saying how Tucker is a really nice guy, that's another interesting thing is, you know, your own experience with Tucker Carlson and Joe Rogan being friends of yours. And if you do listen to the mainstream media out there or the corporate press out there, you would think these two guys are monsters. It's crazy. It just goes to show the power. When, it, when it, as soon as the the establishment, um, whether it's uh, media, politicians, uh, whatever it might be, stacks up against somebody for something, that's when you should take a breath and really, really look at it and ask the why. And usually, I ask myself, no matter what it is, how does this this person, this corporation, this entity? Uh, want to manipulate me with whatever it is that they're putting out um, because it's uh, social media in particular is a tool and uh, a tool that can be used to manipulate. And uh, so that's, that's the question I ask, how is this, how's this person, what is it, what is this person trying to do? What is this, this corporation trying to do? How are they trying to get me to think? How are they trying to influence my behavior? Now, back in the day, it would be uh, uh, consumer behavior. We want you to buy something um, and uh, buy your product rather than the competitors. No different. Now it is about uh, controlling, influencing, manipulating behaviors and thoughts. Uh, and even without the AI side of the house, it is a very popular, a very powerful tool when it comes to manipulation. So I always just take a breath and ask myself, how am I trying being manipulated when I see something? And even if it's against somebody that I uh, uh, don't like, uh, for, sure. for lack of a better term, uh, and see something pile up against that person, I wonder, oh, why, what are they trying to do? What's, what's uh, how am I being manipulated here? And it's just, I, I found that to um, give me a little bit more peace of mind and let me take a breath and uh, really study things more in depth before uh, jump into a conclusion. But really history, I think, is that foundation that would make us a much more uh, powerful country if we had a, as this common ground as far as respecting uh, those who came before to give us these options and opportunities we have today, understanding what was sacrificed so that we do have these options and opportunities and freedoms today, and then maybe realize that, hey, the decisions we make today aren't for us, they're for the next generation. And maybe I should put a little more thought into this vote or this retweet um, because yeah. it's going to have an impact on the next generation of my kids and grandkids. Um, so it deserves a little more time. So stop tweeting and start reading. I think I said that on Twitter one time. So 
Yeah, no, I love that. And and once again, pick up only the dead. It's going to be out in a few days when you guys are hearing this. So May 16th, but the pre-orders matter. We do want to see Jack Carr back on that New York Times bestseller list. And if I could offer my own suggestion, you know, you're talking about how connected we are to everything and the amount of distractions. Put put your phone down, put it away, go somewhere quiet where you could read this and really absorb it. Um, I think that's what's most important um, to get away from those distractions and to really enjoy yourself and escape in, in a character like this in a book like this. Um, once again, it's officialjackcar.com at jackcarusa on Twitter, also on Instagram. This has been an honor as always. And, um, and, and I think David said you're going to be in New York City in June, right? That's right. I come in on, uh, I think, the third for Thriller Fest, which is like a uh, uh, author, thriller, fan conference. And uh, that's on the third, I think. And then I think there's something in New Jersey, maybe on Sunday or Monday. I think it's, it's on my website at officialjackcar.com. It'll be the last thing on the book tour uh, drop down there. Um, but yeah, I think I'm in New Jersey, I think think on that Sunday or Monday but anyway it's on the website yeah I mean if we could do an in-studio in June that would be excellent I mean Chris will be on but via Zoom because it's so hard to get him out of Kansas he he loves it there and unless he's you know being paid to do some speaking engagement it's hard to get him to leave but I'd love to do an in-studio um but this this was awesome I really appreciate it Oh, man. No, thank you. It's always great to talk to you. And it did seem like I just talked to you yesterday. And I think part of that is like you see you, you know, I follow you and see you on the social channel. So in my head, it's like we've uh, we've talked a lot more frequently than we have. But uh, thank you so much for having me on. It's uh, it's uh, it's always an honor to talk to you. And I sincerely appreciate it. That's all for this episode of Battleline Podcast. But we're always posting new content on social media. Follow us on Instagram at Battleline Podcast and on Twitter at BattlelinePod. That's an order. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any new episodes up every Tuesday. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice. Believe in yourself. Face all challenges head on. And as always, never quit.